Hello, and thank you for tuning in today. This is Emily, the creator of the Community Agriculture Project, and this is a Community Agriculture Project production. So in case this is your first time tuning in or your first time hearing about the project, the Community Agriculture Project was started in late 2020 as a resource directory to document all of the amazing agriculturally related resources that are available across the states with all different organizations and farms and programs that offer anything from an amazing abundant CSA to various workshops and educational opportunities for people that want to be more connected to their food and to their food system and embrace ideas like food sovereignty. The project has also become an educational resource in and of itself as through time I have interviewed people about the ways that they view the food system and the ways that they're engaging with it. So I'm especially excited to share this next interview with you. Uh, I have just returned from spending about a week or so volunteering with an agroforestry project. So if you're not familiar with the term agroforestry, it is agriculture that incorporates the cultivation and conservation of trees. Um, and the type of agroforestry farm that I was working at was actually a coffee farm that also had other crops like banana, plantain, and was conserving shade trees like the guava tree. So we're going to be getting into all that and more in the following interview, but that's just to give a little bit of background. So what you're about to hear is my conversation with Domenico, known on Instagram as Puentes Naturales, which translates from Spanish to natural bridges. And I think that's a really, really great description for who Domenico is, for his community, and in our conversation, I think we really cover how his project, The Forgotten Forest, and his Beneficiado, Centro Autonoma, really embody the different pillars of sustainability, including human, social, environmental, and economical. I'm really excited to talk about it, so let's just get into it, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here at Centro Autonoma. Centro Autonoma, and... Can you tell everybody a little bit about what that is and where where we are? Sure. Yeah. So, like you said, we're in uh, we're in Barrio Tanama of Atuntas, Puerto Rico, which is in the central mountain range of Puerto Rico, where coffee, vanilla, and other other crops are grown. Um, specifically, we're here at Central Tanama, which is our new project. Um, it's our community center and value-added processing facility. We mainly work with specialty coffee, but also cacao and, and other crops here, and we serve the surrounding community. Most of our coffee, most of our products here are produced and sold uh, internationally um, and are produced mainly in collaboration with small and medium-scale farmers. Amazing. And who are you? How did you get here? Um, so, I'm a New Rican, so that means I'm Puerto Rican, my family's from here, I was born and raised in New York, and like many New Ricans, spent most of my life coming back and forth to Puerto Rico. Both of my parents were um, small business owners, so my summer camp and my brother and sister's summer camp was 
staying at my abuelo's house in Aguadilla, which is on the west side of the island for, for most of the summers. And so that was my experience with Puerto Rico as a child. Um, I first started coming to Puerto Rico on my own in college. Um, my background was not in agriculture. And even though both my, my grandparents grew up um, on sugarcane plantations in Puerto Rico, which was the predominant crop at that time, um, I didn't really have much uh, exposure and involvement with with agriculture, like in my immediate family growing up. Um, in college, I started a project, um, which eventually became my undergraduate uh, senior thesis, and then um, continued work that I did uh, during my master's um, program, which was basically on the potential for specialty and value-added agriculture to empower small-scale farmers in Puerto Rico. So to do that, um, that's first, I did a project researching and really thoroughly documenting and, and tracing the agrarian history of Puerto Rico, as well as the history of economic and political policies that have affected kind of food policy in Puerto Rico from, from the 50s when Puerto Rico was given U.S. citizenship. Um, after that, I, that, that took about eight months of, of research after that, um, when I started develop, developing it to my thesis project, I started calling up farmers, government officials, nonprofits, um, farmers, any like rural entrepreneurs that I could get find their number, which isn't easy, especially up here <laughs> in the mountains. Definitely not. Um, just to try to understand what was actually going on on the ground now that I had this, um, this kind of basis of understanding of the historical challenges and, and dynamics of Puerto Rico. So you're studying like the policy from the U.S. side as well as the policy that's affecting, like coming from within the island and affecting the island. Yeah, so... Because um, that seems like two, two different, maybe sometimes overlapping factors. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of my um, original work was in understanding kind of the, the U.S. Um, Puerto Rico dynamics and what dynamics the major players um, exist that uh, are creating the system that, that we have right now, mm -hmm. which in Puerto Rico has been one where agriculture has been on continued decline um, from the 1950s with Operation Bootstrap, which was an externally led effort by the U.S. to rapidly transition Puerto Rico's economy from a traditional agrarian economy <clears throat> to a more to a more modern service-based um, mm -hmm. and consumer economy instead of a producer economy. And so, so that, uh, sorry, can you just describe briefly what an agrarian economy looks like? Um, well, prior to prior to Operation Bootstrap in the U.S., most um, most families in Puerto Rico um, live you know scattered throughout the island and been in more rural areas where um, we produced our own food, um, it was basically subsistence style agriculture, and it was very community community based system. Um, when Spain came to Puerto Rico, they kind of transitioned that kind of agrarian lifestyle to more of a hacienda system. The hacienda system, was, and that's kind of where we are right now too. 
<laughs> yeah, we're in a similar a similar system now, unfortunately. Um, the Hacienda system introduced by Spain was was orientated around like export um, export led production um, and large land holdings owned by, for the most part, uh, Spanish, Mallorcan, Corsican, Balearic, like European um, immigrants. Uh, Spain issued uh, the de decree de gracias, which uh, promoted um, Europeans to come to Puerto Rico. So at that time, kind of their, Spain's colonial power was weakening and Puerto Rico was a very militarily um, and economically important uh, holding for them. So they wanted to move white people to Puerto Rico so that they mm. can maintain control over, over this area here. And so they gave huge incentives for for uh, for any for any Europeans who would come here and acknowledge the spirit, that Spanish crown and start their businesses. Um, so An all too familiar tale. Yep. <laughs> you can get into that as well uh, later, kind of the same. <clears throat> The same kind of system and dynamic is going on now with kind of Act 60 um, and the individual uh, investor incentives that, that exist in Puerto Rico and there's a lot of tension mm -hmm. around that. Um, but yeah, so when Puerto Rico had its golden agrarian age under the Hacienda system, um, kind of my, my undergraduate work, um, the original project before the thesis was on the agrarian history and kind of showing how during that golden age in the 1800s in Puerto Rico of um, massive exports from Puerto Rico, um, it wasn't really a golden age for the average people of Puerto Rico. You had all these huge haciendas uh, run by or owned by um, foreign, foreign merchants and foreign people here um, under pretty oppressive systems. Um, we had the animal system in Puerto Rico um, in the hacienda system. Um, which is one, the social order as well as kind of the economic order, uh, the way society was oriented uh, in order to produce kind of all this, all these products for export like sugarcane and coffee. Um, in the coffee hacienda, you had hundreds of the workers and families that were living and working on the farm. As long as they were working, they were able to have their shacks on the, on the farm where the family and the children would live. The arimao or arimado workers would be paid in hacienda coins, mm. which were coins minted by large haciendas in Spain and then sent over to Puerto Rico. And then the hacienda owners would pay their employees in coins that were only valid at the farm stores of that farm. So if you're a farm worker, you're harvesting all these crops, bringing them to the farm store, getting paid in money that was only valid on the farm, on the farm, and then using that money to pay for the crops that you had harvested. So this is like how that, you know, middle person got introduced here instead of just like bartering between people. Like you have this crop, I have this crop, or I have this resource, and we can exchange. Like now, there's a middleman presented. Yeah, and, and again, since we have that relationship with Europe and with, uh, with Spain, um, the entire island was deforested and all made to grow, to grow coffee at that time. Mm -hmm. By the 1890s, Puerto Rico, this little island, was the sixth largest exporter of coffee in the world. Wow. And 
everything about life, uh, you know, all of life was oriented around that hacienda system and what it took to manage and produce these massive quantities of export of export product, uh, which again wasn't for wasn't for the locals or wasn't for anyone here to benefit from. So there's so many directions that I want to take it from here because maybe we should hold off until later to talk about, you know, where large companies come in and continue that culture. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we could talk about just like how that has translated into the modern presence here and how that shifted over the last 70 years. Mm -hmm. um, or how your project is really just like trying to be an alternative option for the culture that's developed here. Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit um, about what exists today, what the dynamics are, and then get into how we're trying to do, do something different, yeah. an alternative to that system. Yeah. Um, so like I referenced before, uh, Operation Bootstrap started in the 50s. Um, and successfully, rapidly industrialized and transitioned Puerto Rico's um, economy and society um, has led to an existence today where Puerto Rico imports over 85% of the food that it, um, food that it consumes. Um, and exists in kind of this weird uh, in-between state politically and economically, or unequally integrated into like the, into the U.S. system, polit politically, economically. So we're a territory, still basically a, a holding or a colony of, of the U.S. where we don't, um, we have limited voting rights, we have limited um, government benef benefits that other Americans uh, are able to benefit from that we're not able to fully benefit from. Um, and we have these really antiquated maritime laws where uh, Puerto Rico is not able to negotiate and directly trade with other with other countries or our brother and sister islands here in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, we are one of the we're one of the largest markets in the world for U.S. goods. Mm -hmm. So as a small little island, we are like one of the top three largest consuming markets for the U.S. economy um, because we have no option of other trading partners. So everything that comes to Puerto Rico must go through a U.S. port first, be transferred onto a U.S.-owned ship and a predominantly U.S. Uh, uh, US crewed ship um, and then sent to Puerto Rico, which increases the costs on, on all basic goods. So in Puerto Rico, the per capita income is less than half the poorest U.S. state, yet we have, you know, upwards of 10% higher prices on basic goods because of this, these maritime laws, which all the taxes and funds that, that, that are produced from that go towards basically um, supporting the U.S. maritime like shipping industry. Um, which is a huge burden to place on on our small island. Yeah, it's oppressive. Yeah, in in Puerto Rico, we have um, basically monopolies and duopolies in just about every industry and sector of the economy that you look at. 
whether it's the banking the banking industry um, or banking sector. Banco where, Popular. Yeah, what you have Banco Popular, which is one powerful Puerto Rican family, and a couple other alternatives, which are all being like edged out of the island. Um, you have the shipping companies, you have the ports, you have, you know, the, the contracts for the major roads and the highways in Puerto Rico. Um, there's a family for, there's like a family for everything, for every sector and like and business in Puerto Rico. And that really, from what I've heard with conversations and uh, with other people on the island, that also translates to the government positions and like yeah. just in terms of the um, corruption with when the Puerto Rican government gets money, like the family's kind of at the top hoard that money and use it for their own interests as compared to dealing with certain issues or letting that trickle around yeah we have a we have um a very complex and inefficient bureaucracy in puerto rico that's in many ways still has all like a lot of the vestiges of like spanish um spanish uh, like civic uh law and and ways of doing business and ways of administering uh, public services and government so it's very antiquated it makes it very very difficult environment for small businesses to thrive it's a it's a huge burden uh to, to everyone um From the people yeah yeah which is very unfortunate and like i feel like farmers get a lot of that burden like a huge amount of that burden yeah so among the the duopolies or monopolies that we're talking about, same thing exists in agriculture, um, which there's massive amount of federal funding for agriculture. Um, a lot of it gets sent to Puerto Rico and it never trickles down to the average to the average farmer. In coffee, and particularly in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico consumes roughly 30 million pounds of coffee a year, just domestically here and we import around 27 or 28 million of that, which is, which is crazy. That's um, so crazy. And the government is the only entity that can legally import that green coffee. So the government imports all this, um, all this inexpensive coffee from Mexico and Dominican Republic. They bring the Robusta coffee from Dominican Republic the Arabica coffee from Mexico. They bring those millions of pounds of coffee to Puerto Rico. They warehouse it up here in the mountains. You saw yeah. the warehouse the other day. Yeah. And then um, all the major suppliers here in Puerto Rico purchase from, from the government. And the local government here makes millions of dollars a year just off of the simple transaction, the simple sale of being the only entity that could bring it in and then selling it to a captive a captive market here with other options. And so Alto Grande and Yalcono? Yeah, Yalcono. Yalcono, and how are they part of that? Because they, they've been around since like the 1800s. Yeah, right? so in this case, it's a duopoly in, in coffee in Puerto, in Puerto Rico. You have one um, public entity, which is the government, and then one private entity. Which is, which is Puerto Rico Coffee Roasters, which is a subsidiary of the Coca-Cola Bottling Company in Puerto Rico. Over the past 20 years, they've consolidated most of the heritage or legacy brands of Puerto Rico that, that we were talking about were around 
during in the Puerto hacienda Rico's, era. Yeah, the hacienda era Puerto Rico's golden age where even today those brands say cafe de papas y reyes which is coffee of popes and kings mm. because Puerto Rico used to export to the Vatican and to Italy and all over Europe um, so this this company um, over the past 20 years acquired all of the all of these major brands and now controls roughly 80-85% of the of the distribution of roasted coffee in Puerto Rico. So they one distribute most of the coffee in Puerto Rico. They purchase massive amounts of imported coffee from the government. So they're the major purchaser or client of the of the government's uh, imported coffee. And then the laws are so in Puerto Rico that um, you don't have to declare the percentage of Puerto Rican versus imported coffee. And there's very loose uh, marketing and branding laws in Puerto Rico. So you're able to call a product 100% hecho Puerto Rico, which means made in Puerto Rico, even if all of the components of the product are, are imported. So as you can see, um, they're not necessarily um, actively plotting against, against Puerto Rican farmers or, Puerto, or local Puerto Rican coffee, but there's limited, there's limited incentive for the government or for these major companies to support um, a, a value chain and ecosystem in Puerto Rico. Um, where small farmers are, are, are thriving. Yeah. The government has no incentive to support it because they can just import more coffee and have and make more money. So the less we produce here, the more they <clears throat> the more they just more they can justify importing and the higher their profits are. And same thing for, for these big companies. In addition to um, buying all this imported coffee this company also controls around 80% of the processing facilities in Puerto Rico. So in Puerto Rico today, of the little bit of coffee that is produced here, which is a few million pounds a year, about 75% of it is produced by small-scale farmers. So, so that's a few million pounds a year, and Puerto Rico consumes like 30 million pounds a yeah. year? Yeah. Okay. So the little bit that is produced here at the farm level is mostly produced by small farmers. So with coffee, you harvest it. Once it's harvested, it needs to be processed very quickly. It starts very high in sugar content, so it starts fermenting and degrading immediately. So um, the average small scale farmer who has 10 acres of land or, or, or less here who's growing coffee um, at that scale, it doesn't make sense to invest in your own processing facility. And most times, even if a farmer wanted to, they don't have the access to, to capital um, to be able to, make, to even consider those types of investments. Right. Um, so what small farmers are forced to do is sell their coffee to a processor or a beneficiado, um, which... Uh, here at Central Panama, we have we have a beneficiado as well, where we purchase versus coffee. But, but that's really rare. It seems like. Yeah. So. Um, given that, what did you say? Eighty percent of the processing facilities are owned, owned by Coca Cola. Yeah. Or so Coca Cola or one company. 
one company, which Coca-Cola subsidiary, yeah, uh, yeah. Puerto Rico Coffee Roasters is the name of the company, yeah. um, which owns the brands, like you said, Yalcono, Alto Grande, Cafe Rico, Cafe Juntas, all these mm. different brands. Like when you go to a supermarket and you see like 30 coffees on the shelf in Puerto Rico, like probably 25 of them are one company, wow. just all different brands that they own. And those companies are not interested in supporting <laughs> agrarian life lifestyles. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so when the small farmer harvests their coffee, they have this delicate crop that needs to be sold within the 12 to 24 hour period or else they're significantly losing value on it. So they have to go to their local processing center. Eight out of ten times, the only option in town is going to be Puerto Rico Coffee Roasters, you know, this, this big company, and they don't incentivize quality. Um, every year, they kind of decide what their price is going to be and announce it at the beginning of the season, and farmers have to accept whatever it is. Um, they have to find a way to make it work because yeah. they're like, this is my connection to continue my livelihood yeah. the way so I they, know it. They're in, a, they're in a constant state of disempowerment where they have no leverage to push back and demand higher price for their coffee because these big companies don't need the coffee. They just need enough to blend in with the imported coffee so that they can call it Puerto Rican. Um, and like, this might be an early point to ask that question but what do the laws look like and what does the lobbying look like to try and change something like that because um, it seems like changing that law or at least having standards for how much how much puerto rican coffee is in this blend would be powerful given the current landscape yeah so um, in the beginning of the pandemic, we started this project called The Forgotten Forest, and the idea behind it was to demonstrate um, the potential for high-quality, low-yielding coffee varieties grown under agroforestry, organic conditions in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, so we started that project, we did crowdfunding for it, we were able to raise some funds to get it started. And then we did that pretty successfully, pretty quickly. That attracted attention and interest from other institutions and organizations that wanted to help us scale it um, and help other farmers replicate what we were doing. Um, so we've been doing that for the past few years with this Forgotten Forest brand. This year we're actually like debuting the Forgotten Forest brand and we have our first cohort of, of eight farmers who are receiving full support from the program and about 12 in total that are receiving some level of support this year and another 50 farmers who are somewhere in the pipeline of, of preparing to be, uh, to be eligible for the program. Yeah, and let me just say, like, th those are really significant numbers given the amount of farmers in the area. Yeah. Like, that's really significant. Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, roughly like 14,000 farmers in Puerto Rico. About half of them uh, properly like um, registered businesses and the other half of them more informal. And um, that's farming farms. all types of crops. Yeah. 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 And around around four to 5,000 coffee farmers out of that number. Four to 5,000 coffee farmers. So... 
what are you at? Like point, point 0.1%, you know, 1%. Yeah. I'm not doing my mental math right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's about 1% engagement so far with your project. That's only three years in. Well, yeah, this is, this is our first year. Um, or one year, yeah. This is our first year of the project. The past two years, we're doing our demo on our own farm, raising funds to now scale it to other farms. And now this is our first year that we set up a nursery um, that can hold 20,000 coffee seedlings, um, another 10,000 shade tree seedlings, which are going to be coming from, one, whatever we can produce, and the rest is coming from Para La Naturaleza, which is another nonprofit in Puerto Rico that has nurseries all over the island with, with shade trees and, and different native trees. And so, so to get back to like your yes. yeah, to get back to your question, which is a long way back, but I'm, <laughs> I'm still I'm still on the road back. You're there. on it, you're on it. Yeah. Um we started this project and we made all these standards. Um and the idea for the future is for this for this uh network that we're building of farmers who are fully engaged in the project to become more of a, a cooperative. Um and then two, the Forgotten Forest brand. Um, to become more of like a seal and and guarantee on certain standards that that, that we and our and our partners abide to, to kind of be an alternative. We don't we're not like super big on making it like a certified organic seal <laughs> or a certified fair trade seal because we've kind of seen we've had the benefit the last few decades to see what's happened with certified organic and certified fair trade. I think more progressive new companies um, and buyers are kind of moving away from that, that just being able to call your coffee organic or fair trade isn't sufficient for these buyers or for consumers. They want to know more and they want to see more traceability and transparency. And people can, let me just mention that people can read some of your thoughts about fair trade on an article that you wrote a couple of years ago. Yeah, if you go to the if you go to the link tree, uh, Forgotten Forest, there's like a bunch of links to the the articles and blog posts and whatnot. And um, I could like put my email or something here because I can I can send people like the thesis as well or the literature reviews that I've done on this. For sure, right. yeah. Just want to mention that because I there's definitely a lot of consumer not confusion, but there's just a lot going at the consumer and. Not everybody has the ability to feel that, especially not when they're like in the grocery store. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if people want to read a little bit more deeper into that, because that could be a whole conversation and podcast on its own of just like fielding certifications and what that means. But um, they can go find that there. But anyway. I think I showed you the new branding a little bit. I don't know if I showed you the full new visual identity for Forgotten Forest. Um, so what it looks like, just to describe it to the listener, is um, a Q amongst other things, but most importantly, a QR code on the bag of coffee that tells the consumer. Yeah, the, the full process and like basically all the data on the provenance of this coffee that like made it to your bag. Um, so yeah, we're, we're kind of moving away from making a seal. We do want to have kind of our like manifesto and we're working with, um, we're working with a group of agronomists, farmers in our program, 
volunteers um, and some of our partners at TechnoServe and, and Parla Naturaleza to make like our comprehensive um, guide for our, our farming practices, our kind of values and, and approach and um, towards impact um, so, and whatnot. Yeah, I like but, that uh, you're developing the standards from like what you, you're actually walking walking the talk and developing the standards from the ground up, not necessarily from the perspective of like, oh, I'm going to create this huge umbrella standard and get all these people to be about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know the history of other like stamps and standards if they, from which direction they were developed or, but yeah, I, I like that approach of what you're doing here. Yeah, that's why I, I haven't even been like, pushing too much the whole cooperative um, idea yet. Um, we're tr- trying to get set up and established. And as we like build this network of, you know, in a few years from now, we'll have, we'll have dozens of farmers that have gone through now this program and have seedlings and organic compost and technical support and shade trees from us. Mm-hmm. And I want to like that to happen more organically, more like naturally kind of coming together and have it be from all the members that they want this yeah. and they're invested in, in, in creating kind of that more formal uh, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of more of like mid, midterm or longer term goal for us. Um, but so that we want the Forgotten Forest brand to mean something. We want to represent all these standards um we're also working on things like our bags are also going to say like um desde la cordillera uh puerto rico and la cordillera central is like the central mountain region in puerto rico and since we don't have a like denomination of origin type stamp in puerto rico where if you look at every wine it has like the denomination of origin that it's from the rioja region of spain Um, even other coffee origins like Kona, Hawaii, or Jamaica Blue Mountain, they have a denomination of origin and they have an association that has to approve you if you have to, if you're going to use that on your, on your label. And if you're going to blend coffee from that region and from outside of that region, you have to specify the amount. Like we have nothing like that in Puerto Rico. However, Um, like the idea exists mm -hmm. and that is like, you know, this is the northwestern tip of the coffee belt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We got some Saharan sprinkles up in here. Yes, yeah, so we want to continue Special to. Terroir. We want to develop and more, more specifically define Puerto Rico's terroir and coffee growing region and what makes it unique, um, and then kind of protect that that denomination. So we're going to start kind of now putting the the La Cordillera label on our bags and as we develop it hopefully we'll like fill that up with more and more because any label or brand is just a name and it's like it's like an empty container and then you fill it with meaning and you fill it with all these things and right now that's what it's going to be but the idea is for that to mean more and more as we kind of develop and define it and work with other experts and, and agronomists and scientists to really like zero in on what this region is and like what makes it special and Um, there's there's the scientific and agronomy approach to defining that but it's also like once you create that container it's 
it's so much more than just the coffee like it's the community here and it's the livelihood here and it's like the sustainability of like what that means yeah 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 we're excited to to do that this year um most of our coffee is being exported internationally and we're basically saving ourselves just enough to launch like our direct-to-consumer brand and be able to get some bags of roasted coffee out there this year and like have a dialogue with the consumers and kind of see how people react and whatnot and slowly start building that um and yeah build something that means something to a lot of people especially those who are working with us here in puerto rico and actually our hands in the dirt making it happen mm -hmm. but also that the education is a huge part of it for the U.S. market, for the international market. Um, I think in the last five years with all the hurricanes and political unrest, the U.S. has become more aware of Puerto Rico. But still, most people... Hopefully. Yeah, still most people, like, don't know exactly where Puerto Rico is. They don't know if we're an independent country or if we're part of the U.S. Um, and certainly internationally, like, where our markets are, like Dubai, Saudi Arabia, Japan, South Korea... Um, they have no idea where Puerto Rico is, so we have an opportunity to educate and to like put our best foot forward and like properly contextualize Puerto Rico um, from an environmental standpoint, quality standpoint, cultural standpoint, all, all these different things. So it's, it's an exciting opportunity and a huge responsibility um, to kind of put our best foot forward. Yeah, and and I like I really like this approach of just like melding really well with the consumer, with the traceability, like having them be able to see this pipeline is an experience that through your product is just a really great starting point. Like they can just, yeah, we're, it's we're, a great educational starting we're point. We're piloting it this year. And once we get through this season, we're really looking to really fine tune it um, and have the kind of traceability stuff be, um, really informative but also like easy for the consumer to access mm -hmm. um and kind of understand not just like a bunch of numbers that they look at it's gonna be like nutrition label 2.0 yeah <laughs> yeah so we're working with uh we're working with the traceability uh local company here in puerto rico and and piloting them with piloting this with them so it's exciting we're like their first uh client that we're doing this with and we're really co-creating what it's going to what it's going to be like yeah um, i think probably for a lot of people listening when they hear trace a word like traceability like it doesn't really mean much to people i don't yeah. think necessarily like people might not even be aware that like traceability is something they might want to consider with their food mm -hmm. um just because i think of the you know not just the deep disconnection that we have with our food but just i don't know I think there's a, I think there's a lot of uh, powerful arguments for why you should care about traceability and where your and where your your product comes from, where what you're consuming comes from, especially when it's a food product or something that you're consuming, like coffee or chocolate like, or something else. These these things like coffee and chocolate are so deeply inherently political too that it's like something that I hope that comes from traceability is. And I don't know if you share the same sentiment, but just, yeah, it starts with actually understanding this pipeline of the product that you're consuming, which 
hopefully builds to you building an awareness of the political situation that's happening between the U.S. and Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico and these other places, yeah, around the world. Yeah, well, with, with Forgotten Forest, um, we see what we're doing in agriculture and in coffee as a microcosm for um, the problems and challenges that exist um, in every in every aspect of of Puerto Rico and beyond Puerto Rico and all sorts of like colonial relationships between the global north and global south um, around the world. So that's why we're trying to be really intentional at every step. And traceability for Puerto Rico is something that we don't have with our own with our own government. Um, there's no there's no transparency um, in our government here. Like we were talking about, billions of dollars show up to to our door here in Puerto Rico, and they and they yeah. Dis- can you can you tell people a little bit about mismanaged. that? Um, yeah, sure. Um, and so I, I, that's another reason why I think it's important to have transparency here, just to show the stark contrast and 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 the values of of having transparency versus what we have now, which is a very opaque um, system that is abusive and like deeply unfair to, to the average person here. Um, in Puerto Rico, we're, again, we're an un- unequally integrated into the U.S. So there's a lot of confusion and a lot of misunderstanding. And if you go to the politicians at the highest level, you go to the bureaucrats and you go to the supposed experts no one really knows exactly what the laws are on 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 particular things no one knows exactly what the tax code um is and there's a reason for that um we have this we have this dynamic and we have this uh political economic situation in puerto rico where there's these few large powerful uh forces that that exist um, and they greatly benefit from kind of the opaqueness and all of the confusion and <clears throat> and incapacity in Puerto Rico. Like we were talking about before with uh, all the all the funding that came after Maria for coffee farmers that was given to local organizations and local and, and small government um, agencies. Those small government agencies and organizations didn't have the capacity to execute these huge grants. So the grants were given to big corporations in Puerto Rico. So we have corporations in Puerto Rico deciding who's what small farmer is getting getting money for what and who's getting support and who isn't instead of when you know, they are not tapped in at all and, to yeah, the instead of government and nonprofit agencies doing that. And so, and why is it better for government and nonprofit agencies to do that as compared to the corporations? It might seem obvious, but just to like have that clarity. Um, the past, the past hun- several hundred years in Puerto Rico, like we were talking about, from from the Spanish and European elite who came here and set up the banks and set up private business and have consolidated power in, this, in a few hands. All those dynamics and still exist in Puerto Rico, and they're at the highest level of gov- highest levels of government and highest levels of uh, kind of the corporate elite in Puerto Rico, and they're so deeply entrenched that that kind of shadow uh, 
dynamic that isn't um, that isn't as out in the open to the public exists, and it benefits off of the chaos and in, incapacity and inefficiency of our of our systems that are supposed to be supposed to be functioning here. Like functioning we, we, and serving the people and like the best interest of the people is not held in mind by that level of operation. No, um, in a properly functioning society, you have, you know, small, medium and large institutions of all different kinds and everywhere in between and power and influence is distributed like across that system. Um, but in the system we have now, you have like all the power concentrated at the very top. There's no like middle ground. And so there's only like the top and the bottom and no middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these, all these people or all these institutions and forces at the top benefit from their being a mess in the middle because that they're able to, they're able to come in and take control in that kind of like power and in, capacity vacuum that exists and that's what we've like seen that's what we've seen uh time and time again so so what we see a lot and especially with like the frequency of natural disaster hurricane big storm in puerto rico is like all right the government <laughs> doesn't really do much but there ends up being a lot of money floating around especially after these large events mm-hmm. um and there seems to not, that money doesn't seem to get to where it needs to go. Yeah. And so. Yeah, year, years after uh, Hurricane Maria in 2017, there's still billions of dollars of funds that have just never been properly allocated that are just sitting and being eaten away by different agencies, but not actually going to. Right. Going out to the, going out to the people. When hurricane, when when people came here after Hurricane Maria, to uh, to help put roofs back on homes and replace blue tarps, and help people and fix roads, a lot of the damage that they were fixing wasn't even from Hurricane Maria. It was from like Hurricane George, which came in the '90s, and roads still weren't fixed from a hurricane that came in the '90s. And people still didn't have roofs fixed on their house, houses from the 90s. Uh, it's is, been a long compiling of effects. And mm-hmm. so what, so I feel like what your organization does is, is fill in the question mark of how do we have a different level of support, like support that can be sustained for the people's livelihoods here specifically for you you're focusing on like the the farmers in this area because they're very affected by these natural disasters with forgotten forests um where the mission is to is to find a sustainable and elevated uh equilibrium in quality of life for the average um the average uh agrarian family where we go um and we're doing that mainly through uh, specialty and value-added agriculture, other related experiences, other types of diversification. And in order to do that, we like understand that a whole ecosystem needs to exist to support these farmers at all different stages 
of the value chain and, for, and across all different all different areas. Um, so we're not just trying to be a boutique um, brand or something. We really see like from end to end where there's all these deficiencies and there's, there's the lack of these organizations or incapacity of different support organizations and mechanisms and and systems throughout the whole the whole chain to support this. Right. So we're doing our best to address that um, here at Centro Panama Forgotten Forest. We're um, working directly with farmers at every stage of the value chain. We're also working with with other nonprofits and institutions to provide um, financial literacy, education, um, other other financial and business planning services, so farmers can have more understanding and insight into their own operations and make better decisions themselves. Um, and we're just trying, we're trying to be an alternative to the, the system that exists now and has so clearly been failing farmers. Um, but I, I also often say like, we're not like responding to a crisis, we're responding to a sustained, but deeply unsatisfactory equilibrium and quality of life for for people involved in you know in this in this way of life, and so you have a lot of knowledge of kind of the gaps that need to be filled, and you definitely have a big picture of what's going on. Um, and how does that translate? Like your alternative that you're developing here, how does that translate to the communities here and how do you build trust with the communities here when you're looking to develop that form of aid, I guess? Um, we, definitely, we, call it aid. No. we definitely don't call it aid. Um, <laughs> And I don't, I don't like. Or just like you develop a, a lot no, of different no, no, no. forms of support, like yeah, yeah, for yeah. the people working in coffee in this area. Like you, you're able to support them at any part of the pipeline. But like, in yeah, order so, for that so to actually reason, go through, yeah. The reason I don't like the word the aid is because we're not just like providing these like inputs. We're not just like we're not treating farmers as people with like a with, with a terminal disease, right? Which is like what I feel like a lot of the aid is is just like you have a terminal disease it's not going to get better right. you're going to die you're going to be sick <laughs> and you're going to suffer and you're going to die eventually yeah that's going to help you make it a little bit less painful like we're not, it's not that's what i kind of see aid as mm -hmm. and that's what we've done for all of africa that's maybe another discussion totally um but that's not what we're trying to do here and that's why kind of from the beginning um from college to now the idea is for it to be, be kind of a hybrid model social enterprise where the backbone of the model is an actual profitable um business or or, or uh, system that can actually you know replenish and feed itself financially um so we're not just giving aid to farmers we're not just giving them free seedlings and saying good luck mm -hmm. um which is what coca-cola yeah we're create, we're helping to establish and and improve the market accessibility and and market for puerto rican specialty products that support these agrarian livelihoods so farmers who are working with us we're really investing in them versus just giving them aid and so what we're providing them an alternative system where they can, uh, where they can work with us at any stage of this of this chain, 
and be- and benefit from it in a way that that makes sense to them. So, so it's not- that can look like anything from buying different forms of coffee from them. What? Explain what that like looks like on the ground sure. for people, because people um, don't really see that. Like I've been here for the past week or so, actually seeing all these farmers come through and like have a place to converse, share knowledge, like talk about what's going on and how they're responding to different things in the field. And so, like, what what are some different examples of what that looks like on the ground? Sure. So with the with the with the Tipica project, we're providing um, free, high quality heirloom uh, heirloom varietal coffee seedlings um, directly to farmers. Organic, free organic compost for their first three years of operations until they get to their first harvest. Um, native Laguna shade trees and technical agronomic support through all of our through our partners, uh, Technoserve and Parla Naturaleza, and and others. Then the facility here, we offer to support farmers at any stage of the value chain, which means one, farmers can sell us their coffee directly, their right coffee. Um, unlike any of the other buyers in Puerto Rico, we have, um, we have incentives for quality and also for environmental practices and, and traceability. So farmers who agree to participate in our traceability program the ceiling on the price that they can get is like more than more than double um, for a far- versus a farmer who, who doesn't agree to that. Um, then we have our kind of quali- and, our quality And scale. where does that come from? Where does that uh, like value come from? It comes from the actual value of the coffee, right? Yeah, and again, so it's not exactly that. That's that's an important thing to yeah. like understand. Um, we're and not, yeah, we're, yeah, we're not, we're not a nonprofit that is just getting some sort of institutional funding and then being able to write a check to a farmer. Um, we're, uh, basing all of our pricing off of market, market forces and what consumers in the market values. Um, and so we found a niche in the market where, where they value all, all of these things, uh, internationally. And so one, we're able to incentivize for quality. Depending on the scale of quality alone, farmers can earn up to uh, three times the average prices paid anywhere else in Puerto Rico. And, and then if you take into consideration the traceability and environmental standards, they can make up to like five or five and a half times the average price here. And so what that actually looks like when you're in the field picking coffee is, when i don't know if anyone who's listening you can see what some of the coffee looks like at different stages um on our instagram but what that actually looks like is there's coffee fruit that's growing on these trees at different ripeness it does not ripen uniformly at all it does not ripen uniformly it's grown on this very extreme terrain and topography extreme and when you are actually harvesting this coffee, you can go through and just strip the branches and take all the fruit at all different stages. However, there's really, really specific stages of the coffee growth that you actually want to harvest. And that's when it's looking like it's called uva, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting that really, really good quality, then it's really going to compromise 
like what the brewed coffee looks like like most people are familiar with drinking a cup of brewed coffee and there's huge once you taste that that uva good good like <laughs> you don't want to go back so there's a lot of people around that are valuing that same level of quality and perfection there i call it perfection <laughs> um that you're you're able to connect and like understand that market and connect that to the farmers that are actually out here picking and be like hey you should pick it in this way and we're gonna process it in this way to develop it this way yeah yeah and going back to kind of like the the hybrid like social enterprise model the reason why like this is important is because um, that's what really builds in the sustainability component um, for us because we're not we're not dependent on continuing to get grant funding to subsidize paying more to farmers our custom our customers are the ones subsidizing it so it's based on on a market force where we're just exchanging value you know a customer values this and this is what we're this is what we're providing so we're able to then build and scale and scale it based on this model because it's not based on an artificial on artificial or temporary things. It's not based on getting some sort of subsidy or passing a protectionist law that gives us preferent our coffee preferential treatment or anything like that. It's based off something tangible that people want that is of high quality. Yeah. And I think that's like something beautiful to shoot for and and entrepreneurs everywhere can learn a little bit from that <laughs> yeah and and that was just the first layer that we were talking about um through the rest of the value chain um one farmers are not like contractually obligated in any way to sell us their coffee they can do whatever they want with it um so the onus is on us to structure incentives um so that they voluntarily want to work with us mm. Um, so it's not like a coercive system, which often that happens in agriculture. Um, a big a big company will say, "Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the seed. I'll give you the seedlings, or I'll give you the fertilizer, but you have a contract with me that I can buy everything that you produce at this at this low price." It happens frequently in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So we don't have any of that. So after after the first stage of the value chain, where you're just buying coffee cherries. Um, we also offer the service of processing coffee for farmers, utilizing um, some of the some of the methods that we've developed that can add significant uh, quality to like the cup score of of their coffee, um, up to helping farmers actually develop their own their own brand and sell their coffee direct to consumer. So. Um, for example, you saw Francisco. Francisco is a great case study of like a hybrid system where he's kind of a medium-sized, small to medium-sized farmer where um, he sells us a portion of his coffee ripe, so just the ripe coffee daily. And part of it, he processes himself on his smaller scale uh, processing uh, equipment. And he ferments, dries the coffee himself and he sells some of his coffee green to us and we're able to buy that at a higher price. And then he takes some of his coffee, he harvests it, ferments it, dries it, processes it. Um, then he comes here, 
we offer him free services to hull and classify his coffee. And then we're, we just helped uh, develop a label and his own brand for his coffee and are now roasting and packaging it for him, charging him a small fee for the for the packaging and handling and roasting and handling Green of it. it. Yeah. And then he's able to sell his coffee direct to consumer. So any way that makes sense for the farmer and we'll we'll help them develop a business plan for what split makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. But at any that's that's what we mean by that at any stage of the value chain. Um, we we work with uh, we work with the farmers. So that's yeah. like medium level of hands-on and you can get lower than that where it's like, oh, I'm only helping with like helping them just get through this end stage or mm-hmm. just like even more of that. It's like I'm doing, I'm like white labeling almost yeah. for yeah. a farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we've done that. Oh, <clears throat> we've done that with some other farmers as well where they have this product that they want to have some, con- some ownership of um, through the process. And we'll we'll offer that to them, and then create their own, help them create their own brand. Like we've had other farmers where we created a basic word mark and logo and packaging. Um, they're able to put our they're able to put our sanitary license and roasting and packaging license on their bag so that they can sell to the end consumer, which is another <coughs> uh, huge barrier for farmers is uh, being able to get that proper sanitation license on it and little things like that that would otherwise prevent them from getting into their local shop or their local supermarket right and also given the average age of farmers here which is around 60 um which i think is also true in a lot of different parts of the states um helping out with some of that technical stuff is huge yeah yeah the silly thing like Putting together a logo that they can email to the health department and get approved. Right. Like they like, would never be able to figure out, you know, how to do that. It would be a, a big or learning a experience huge, for yeah, them, whereas hassle. like it would take people like us five minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Um, it's really, really valuable stuff. Yeah. So. Oh, and, and also in addition to... to to that um, with like our traceability program we um, offer to onboard all of these all of our farmers onto our traceability program um, which means one developing profiles based on all the data we collect from them but two if they agree to the full traceability program we'll send out the team to their farm do a full GIS mapping of their farm um, all the different lots get all of their farmers into the program so that when they bring a product to us we know who harvested it what field it came from what percentage came from each farm and then we're able to able to properly um properly incentivize and and uh compensate everyone and who owns that data because a lot of the times when people get involved in different different organizations and projects that can offer those similar types of, you know, mapping and data collection. There's some fine, fine print involved. Yeah. So we, so we own the data, the farmers have, uh, have all direct access to theirs and they can again, choose to opt, choose or not to opt into that. 
Um, and over time, having all that is going to allow us to make better predictions of needs and whatnot, make better forecasting. And like we were saying, we're also doing helping business planning and financial planning and literacy for farmers. Mm -hmm. So if we're collecting data on different farmers or different regions of, of farmers um, for three years, we're going to be able to do a much better job of helping that farmer make better decisions about their business and where they should expand or where they should go further down the value chain mm -hmm. or, you know, other, other decisions like that. Right. Right, right now, lots of farmers come to me not knowing what they should plant or not knowing how much. Um, and it's amazing to, to see like what little information they're like running on mm. and they're really like taking a stab in the dark a lot of the time and hoping right. that hoping that it, that it works out yeah and which is not like a way in any other industry no one runs a business like that you can't just like <laughs> take a guess and be like oh maybe this will work and then invest a bunch of time and money into it but yeah. that's like what happens here a lot of the time yeah. and yeah i like i like you um having transparency around what you do with the data because i think that like at the end of the day you just want to help them build up their lives you know agrarian life <laughs> build up this old agrarian life yeah and, and instead of just you know having some type of greedy or other type of incentive yeah. behind it that's important definitely understatedly um yeah so we definitely covered a lot I could definitely yeah, cover we're, more. We've been happy to have you here this week. But yeah. also I'm getting to know you a little bit. Yeah. And showing you some of the some of the project. Yeah. I definitely think there's there's so much um there's so much going on here. I definitely wanna say to anybody that's listening, um it's wonderful to actually be here checking it out. Y'all are amazing hosts and you have so much that somebody could do here if they wanted to volunteer kind of longer term um there's a lot going on definitely yeah we didn't even touch too much on more of like the scientific stuff that we're doing and like processing innovation mm -hmm. but that's like a huge part of supporting kind of the the business model as as well and yeah. being able to consistently like improve the quality of the product here and we're borrowing a lot of science and and experience from other industries like different wine and spirits and other other food science stuff to um create new and novel processes and new and novel um sensory experiences with coffee using one a lot of the natural yeasts and bacteria and microorganisms in the environment um, and kind of controlling them to bring out different aspects of the coffee and the cacao, all these different products. Um, so that's exciting stuff that we're diving into as well. That's and super exciting. Definitely for the future, for like the volunteer program here, um, probably going to be looking for, for people that have experience in that area as well and who could help us like really set up um, kind of the lab and the set up the experiments because um, all these experiments obviously come at a cost, especially in the harvest season. 
So we're, we will be doing, people will be continuing to do processing experiments. We're probably going to like plan more like in our budget and in our plan for the season. Like we have this much to like play with and we're going to, you know, do these five different uh, processing experiments, measure all the, measure all the data that we can and see, you know, which processes we want to further refine, which didn't really work out and we're going to scrap and just continue to like build and do research and development on that side. So that's right. That's something that's somewhat new to me. I've kind of gotten into it and self-educated on that just out of necessity. And a lot of the stuff has just been like that. And it's thankfully wound up being things that I, I love and I'm really engaged and interested in as well. Mm-hmm. But I definitely didn't come from this from like scientific or agronomic background. I came from it from more of like the social uh, an economic side of, of trying to support, find ways to make this type of life, this agrarian, uh, nature centered lifestyle viable in Puerto Rico in today's like modern context. Mm-hmm. And just to do that, I've had to learn so much about agriculture and agronomy. I've had to learn so much about the science behind processing and what mm-hmm. influences, uh, quality and like sensory experiences and whatnot. And it's a journey that's, it's a young journey. Continue diving deeper into that. Yeah, so if anybody is listening and is getting all up in their fermentation experiments (laughs) or, you know, exploring the the wonderful worlds of microbiology, um, stay tapped into this project. We also did not even really get to touch on just like what, what does it mean to have to have 34, 34 acres of yeah. agroforest? Yeah. And um, what does it mean to have 34 acres of agroforest go through potentially non-predictable weather patterns and how to remain resilient and not, not frustrated um, when things go wrong and how to remain you know having this holistic approach with your land um because like as i've visited some other farms around here i see that people are just like i know that this fertilizer that's provided from the government is going to be the best thing for these coffee and like that's how i know i'm going to get the most yield well um y'all don't take that approach here so what does that look like and i know that it's also the very beginning of your journey into that really because you've been working with this land since hurricane fiona which was just this past fall so well we have we have one the farm here that we're transitioning to be more um more agroforested and more regenerative and then two we have all these farmers in the surrounding area which we started this project before we had this facility here um, so we already had our cohort of farmers that were scattered all around, all around the mountains. Um, but now that we're here and engaging with the local community, like changing minds as well. Um, so everything that we do at the farm, I feel like we're on in, under a microscope now, um, which is, which is good. Um, because we're like leading by example, um, and one taking this farm, which is, isn't in like the ideal agroforestry conditions that we want. 
and transitioning it more to what we want. We kind of have like And why why isn't it in the most optimal condition right now? Can you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so the farm here, um, prior to like 2011, it was a secondary forest that had been um, untouched for about 80 years. Um, the government and the agricultural insurance um, quasi-government non-profit uh, non business uh, entity um, requires farmers to deforest their land in order to insure their crops and it only allows for monoculture um, to insure the crops. So if you, most farmers in Puerto Rico, um, they intercrop coffee with shade or with temporary shade like bananas and plantains. Um, but in Puerto Rico, you can only insure one crop um, for the field. So, so that is not conducive to agroforestry conditions yeah, so, whatsoever. So they don't promote agroforestry conditions. They actively like require you to deforest your land. Um, in order to get the government subsidized um, fertilizer and so that's what basically was done was done here um, in order to get the insurance and get the subsidies they cleared a lot of the land that they were planting planted the coffee planted temporary shade with plantains and bananas and then since like 2015 started planting all these leguminous shade trees um, which still a lot more has to be. Has it's to so be recent, 2015. Yeah, those trees. That's why we. That's why guava and mocha are two of the varieties that we're using. Um, guava in particular grows pretty quick. Like these trees are only haven't been here that long. Yeah. And they're providing really good shade. They they really are providing a lot for being here since 2015. Yeah. And those are native trees, and they're used to. Or acclimated to this area and yeah, the so soil they're one, and Yeah, nitrogen fixing for the soil, providing shade, providing lots of leaf litter, which is preserving moisture in the soil, um, keeping the soil temperatures low, um, and keeping the soil from eroding with these hurricanes. Yeah, yeah. and with these crazy topography. Yeah. Um, and then the actual root structure of the trees um, and kind of the lateral branches and roots are adapted to the Caribbean where we have these hurricanes and weather events that thrash the trees around. Mm -hmm. So if you take non-native trees and put them here up here in the mountains, we go through a hurricane, they're not going to be able to survive. They're going to get knocked one way and then the other and the main root is gonna snap and it'll be just dead. It's yeah. gonna either fall or be standing standing dead wood. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've seen, like even with our neighbor right here that we showed you, um, he's planted all carbonero trees, which is extremely tempting for farmers to grow. Mm -hmm. And is and they're provided by um, another big um, big corporation in Puerto Rico that aggressively promotes them to farmers as this like too good to be true tree because it literally is too good to be true yes. um it's this like it's another like not a terrible tree but it's a leguminous uh shade tree that grows extremely fast so farmers are able to plant it and in a year and a half they have shade for their for their coffee why but, is shade can you just explain to somebody who's not aware of coffee why shade is so important um so one for like the ecosystem, all the all the shade and the canopy structure creates 
create some more conducive environment for birds and pollinators and, and other species, preserves moisture, um, creates all this leaf litter, all these things we were talking about. Um, but then two, for quality of coffee. Um, for good quality coffee, you want to slow down the maturation of coffee cherries as long as possible. So shielding it or shading it from the sun allows that to be a more slow, gradual process. It also allows the fruit to set better and be more uniform than if it's in if it's in full sun. But also just the full sun stresses the trees. They're not meant to, to be in those kind of conditions. So they mature. The cherry um, will, will dry right up. <laughs> yeah, the cherries will dry right up. Um, they'll mature a lot faster and not reach the, the same sugar density level, which once you once you have that, there's not much we can do in the process to like put that complexity or density back into the coffee. Mm-hmm. So you've got to make sure that that plant is happy. Yeah. And up here in the mountains, we have a we have a microclimate, like you said, on, on the northwestern tip mm-hmm. of the of the coffee belt. Um, we're we're actually able to grow coffee in Puerto Rico at much lower altitudes than most of the rest of the world. Throughout most of the most of the coffee belt, you need to go to close to double or triple the altitude that we have here. We're at around two thousand. Right here, around two thousand five hundred. Mm-hmm. But yeah, more or less from from 1,800 to like 4,000 feet, you're able to grow great coffee in Puerto Rico. There's elevations of 4,000 here? There's elevations a bit above 4,000, but most of that is like protected state forest. So there's not really much cultivation up there. Right. But there is is good cultivation at around like 3,000. Like the farm that I'm taking you to today is at like 3,200. Yeah. Yeah. I but, cut you off at that one point if you want to continue. Which point? The the shade trees? Right before I asked you why shade is important. Uh, I was just talking about the, the root structure, I think, of the of the trees. Yes, and that the too good to be too, too good to be Oh, yeah, yeah. Again. Because because they grow they grow super fast. They so the farmers will shade. be like, like, shade is super important for the coffee. So if the farmer, like, is trying to not cut corners, but just, like, have things happen faster and mm-hmm. try to get this the shmani yeah so a lot of the a lot of the really good native leguminous trees um are very slow growing hardwoods Mm -hmm. that take like 10 years to get good shade and a farmer who's planting coffee this year it needs shade (laughs) isn't waiting 10 years which is totally understandable um so that's why they they choose one plantains and bananas that grow immediately and provide temporary shade what about bamboo? Um, bamboo shade. isn't great. Isn't great for coffee. Um, they like compete with with coffee for nutrients. They mm-hmm. they create like an environment in the soil that isn't great for coffee. Totally. Yeah. So yeah, then what's their option? Um, for for small farmers, we're um, providing them native trees. We we selected a couple of varieties that have a pretty decent growth rate and are also native adapted adapted species here. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're that's what we're providing with the foreground. Yeah, I'm gonna go work on that nursery yeah, right yeah. after we finish yeah. talking. And uh, yeah, part, this is the program for the seedlings is about de-risking the endeavor of doing high quality, environmentally friendly, organic agroforestry coffee. 
because like we've, we've had a few conversations about this all the incentives are stacked against the farmer being able to make the decision in his mid and long-term uh interest and they're always forced to make a decision that puts money in their pocket this week mm-hmm. the decision that um you know that that gives them what they need what meets their immediate need and often that is in sacrifice of the mid and long-term benefits of doing it the way we're doing which is creating creating a a cultivation of higher value crops mm-hmm. that are grown under an, an a more uh environmentally enriching soil enriching system which is going to provide you more consistent returns for a much longer time while also preserving the soil in the nearby uh waterways versus going the short term route which is destructive to the environment and destructive to their own long-term uh productivity. Right. So that 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 happens sometimes like farms that are like dumping all these chemicals into their soil and have deforested it so now the naked soil is exposed to like the sun and the and the elements that are degrading it and 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 eroding it in 20 years or 15 years they can't do anything with that piece of land anymore. It's it's bad soil now and now yeah. they need to move somewhere else. Topsoil takes yeah. so long to form and it, if with the wrong practices it can so easily be washed away. Yeah. So I don't know if you saw the plot at Sander Farms but up in <clears throat> in the forest where we have the 6 acre micro lot plot we have like 8 inches of topsoil up there. Wow. No, I did not see yeah. that. Yeah, but like 8 inches of topsoil and then like a huge mat of like leaf litter. You oh to, my god. Like, you have to reach more than like elbow deep to get to like oh. like go through the soil. Wow. It's just awesome. The soil's pretty acidic. Would be really acidic in that type of environment, I think. In what type of environment? Like uh, just underneath all that leaf litter and kind of in like the more tropical mm-hmm. area. Um We have pretty acidic um, soil, not in this region, not highly acidic um, and more like mid montane microclimate here. There's more of that like um, more of that acidic soil um, here. We have like sandy loam, clay, some volcanic, some volcanic soil, mm-hmm. um, all kind of from where? Together. Huh? I don't I still don't know where the volcanic soil comes from if there's no volcanoes here. No, there's no volcano here. Um I think long long time ago this was formed with like uh underwater volcanoes and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, this is a good this is a good time to wrap up. Um we we hit a lot. Yeah. And I'm I'm excited to share this with people. I hope that like the huge range of everything that you do really can connect with people because these types of, you know, narrative shifts is what I've been um calling them recently. Shout out to um Ebony that I was talking to about that studying anthropology, but these narrative shifts that are occurring, they really take people with deep-seated interests of every single part of this pipeline to take part in it and believe in it and continue to de- develop it. So, um 
yeah, I'm really inspired by everything that you're doing here. And I hope that it inspires people too. Um, Cause it's really wonderful. So we're gonna keep um, fighting. I feel like it's a fight, but it's also like this gentle thing. But, and it's also, it's just a lot of work, honestly. Like you're saying, I don't, I don't see it as like a fight necessarily. Yeah. See, this is, we're, we're building, we're building a better alternative. Yeah. And that's why we had such a wide ranging conversation because everything is needed. We need like, we're creating an alternative system and there needs to be a whole ecosystem to support that alternative system. Yeah. And so there's kind of room for everyone and kind of every perspective. Um, and you know, there's something needed from everywhere to make it possible. I think I just want to throw hands. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And where can people follow your work? Um, check out forgottenforest.com. Um, you could also check out our social media, Forgotten Forest and Puentes Naturales. Perfect. And there's going to be uh, some events happening here throughout the year. Yeah. Um, and plenty of ways if you want to get involved to get involved. So tap in, keep up, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow up with us about any information that was covered in today's podcast, please feel free to send us a DM at Community Ag Project on Instagram or communityagproject at gmail.com if you'd like to send us an email.